David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 9, Brother, Can You Spare a Crime? Part 2. So, I'm having a bit of a motivational problem with this episode. Of all the Game Changers, this is the one I like the least, I've played the least, and frankly feel the most embarrassed about, and yet... There's no denying it's a groundbreaking game for various reasons. I had to include it. It's like having to include Porky's and explain its place in the history of Canadian movie making. It was influential, massively successful, and its success came from making us feel naughty. So... For the first, and I think only time in this series, I have to warn you there is some explicit language and inappropriate content coming up. It all started, as one might expect, in high school. Highland Park High School, in fact, in the North Shore area of Chicago, Illinois. Highland Park had an improv club, or rather a group of guys, and they were all guys. Uh, who got together and founded an improv club. Basically, as member Max Temkin admitted later in an interview, to get the school to pay for comedians to come in and teach them. One of the improv games they played was asking and answering absurd questions. The guys enjoyed the game, but then one of them had the idea of putting both the questions and answers on cards which were drawn randomly, and suddenly, pow, it became hilarious. They'd wake up the next morning still remembering some of the scenes that arose from it. They decided to call the game Kardenfreude, a play on the German word Schadenfreude, which means the enjoyment you get from someone else's suffering. It's also a great number from the show Avenue Q, and possibly where they got the word from, since the hit Tony Award-winning show came out in 2004, and I find it unlikely they knew enough German otherwise. Ben Hantut, another member of the club, later said in an interview with the Dice Hate Me podcast that Mad Libs was the most direct influence on Kardenfreude's creation. Quote, Completing phrases and answering questions in unexpected ways, just for some reason, leads to hilarity, unquote, as we saw in part one. So the group who founded the Improv Club graduated in 2006, and in the fall they went their separate ways off to different colleges around the United States. Over the winter break of 2009, they reunited and, unsurprisingly, reminisced about Improv Club and specifically about Kardenfreude. They were inspired by this discussion to make new decks for themselves, and each of them went back to college in January 2010 with a copy. At spring break, they all reported back in. In every case, once they'd introduced the game, Everyone wanted their own copy, and once a game started, an hour later there'd be 30 people gathered round. They decided to set up a website to make the game available for free, under a Creative Commons license. They decided to change the name to Cards Against Humanity, which is this episode's game changer. 
The new title perfectly encapsulated the sensibility of the game, with its mocking appropriation of the term generally applied to genocidal dictators. Look at us, it said. We're edgy, and if you play the game, you'll be edgy too. In 18 months, the game was downloaded 1,600 times. That's pretty respectable for a totally unknown indie project. As with Werewolf, it was the internet that leveraged and multiplied the effects of word of mouth for the game. I suspect that if Richard Garfield had been born 20 years later, Magic the Gathering would have taken the same path. First available as what has become known as a free print-and-play prototype, and then as a paid download, and finally as a commercial product you buy in stores. In taking the step to making a commercially available version, the Highland Park Gang decided to make use of a new internet tool to avoid having to go cap-in-hand to publishers. They raised the money to produce and distribute the game themselves using a site called Kickstarter, which had launched in April of 2009 and was soon to revolutionize the tabletop industry. The Kickstarter campaign asked for $4,000 to fund the first printing. It ended up raising $15,000. Using a mixture of Google and trial and error, they found a custom playing card manufacturer in New Jersey called AdMagic, who are still the manufacturers of the game today. The first 2,000 boxes were dropped off in Max Temkin's driveway. They all pitched in and hand-packed and addressed the first batch, and off the game went. And the rest, as they say, is history. I remember when the first little black and white boxes turned up at Snakes and Lattes, my local board game cafe and haunt. What's all this about? I asked one of the game baristas. Oh, it's just apples to apples, but rated R, they said. Oh, I said. I looked through the open copy they had. Instead of red and green cards, there were white cards with black font and black cards with white font. Very understated, very zen. One of the first white cards said, jerking off into a pool of children's tears. I put the box down. Apples to Apples seemed to me like a fine game all by itself. I didn't need an adult version. This was a game for people in their late teens or early 20s who were drunk with the new freedom of swearing and talking about masturbation for the first time. It reminded me of the six-page purity tests we printed out and shared amongst ourselves as undergrads, with hundreds of questions like, have you ever used Benoit balls? And have you ever been fisted? For the record, my answers to both of these, and a huge majority of the other questions on this purity test, was no. But you probably knew that already. Pretty soon after that first encounter at Snakes and Lattes, a work colleague asked me if I'd heard of this game called Cards Against Humanity and was it fun? And sooner than I could have ever expected, when people found out I was into board games, they no longer name-checked Monopoly, Risk, or even Catan. It was Cards Against Humanity they wanted to know about, especially where to buy it. It turned out that Snakes and Lattes had lucked into a deal with AdMagic that made it the exclusive Canadian distributor of Cards Against Humanity. And it was selling like hotcakes, better than hotcakes. 
I've played Cards Against Humanity twice that I can remember. Once at a staff party at Snakes and Lattes, and once at a dinner party hosted by a dear friend who was the only person I knew there. My work buddies and I had some fun for a few rounds, and after the initial burst of enjoyment at saying bad words and making people say bad words, we got bored and stopped. And at the dinner party, there wasn't any payoff in the reactions and responses from complete strangers, and I was very self-conscious about the card choices I made because I was worried what they might think of me. It was actually my copy of the game we were playing. Yes, I'd bought a copy for a reason I honestly cannot remember or fathom now. And at the end of that evening, I just left it with my friend and told her she could keep it. I was done with it. My only other anecdote about Cards Against Humanity comes from several years later, when, as a grade six teacher, I was chaperoning my class on an overnight trip to Ottawa. One of the kids had brought a copy along. Yes, by this point, the audience for the game had percolated down even to tweens, much like copies of Playboy and or Playgirl used to back in the heyday of mainstream porn. I was sitting out in the hallway, supervising curfew. This was before Lights Out, and so the kids were still allowed to visit each other in their rooms, but they couldn't run, run around the halls. Most of the class had gathered in this one room to play. They were having a ball, and they had no idea that I could hear every word they were saying. Suddenly, I heard one of the kids say, What's flagellation? So then the kids were arguing about what it meant for a while. No one knew, and for some reason, no one wanted to look it up on their phones, either because there was no Wi-Fi or maybe because they were just afraid of stumbling onto a porn site and getting in trouble. So a few minutes later, one of the kids came into the hallway to go back to his room for something. Oh, hi, he said. Is it lights out yet? No, I said. Then I paused. And then... I explained that flagellation meant hitting or whipping, either yourself or someone else. Oh, he said, expressionless. Thanks. And then instead of going back to his room, he went back in to all his friends and yelled, Maura David's out in the hall and he can hear us. Uh, Maura David is what the students at the school called me. Maura means teacher in Hebrew, and it's customary in Hebrew school to address teachers by their first name hence Maura David. The kids squealed with a mixture of horror and delight. Oh my god, are we in trouble? Oh, I hope not. I don't think so. And they weren't. I didn't go in and lecture the kids about the inappropriateness of the game or try to find out who brought it along. I certainly never thought of confiscating the game. Maybe you would have. Maybe as a parent, you would have wanted me to. But from my point of view, no one was being hurt. They were just having stupid fun. And as I could see, most of the inappropriate content was going right over their heads anyway. I knew for a fact, actually, that several kids in this class had been introduced to the game already by their older siblings and parents. Playing Cards Against Humanity, I could see, was becoming a rite of passage, one of those signifiers that you were exploring what it meant to be an adult in this society. Anyway... By 2011, the Highland Park gang realized they were going to have to formalize things a little bit. Because they had raised all the money themselves, they were beholden to no one. They switched 
to using Amazon for fulfillment and delivery, something else that was new on the scene at the time. They set up an office in a co-working space in Chicago with two full-time employees and five desks. And since most of them no longer lived in Chicago, Max Temkin managed things at the brick-and-mortar office, but all decisions were still being made among the eight founder shareholders. And despite still offering the game as a free PDF download on their website, they were making millions of dollars. And they had begun to attract imitators. The first was called Crabs Adjust Humidity in 2013, which billed itself as an, quote, unofficial expansion, unquote, and which eventually ran to seven new sets of cards. It turns out that Chicago did not have a monopoly on inappropriate humor. Of course, by then, the Highland Gang had begun releasing their own official expansions, including a mainly empty bigger box to hold all the other expansions. Then there was Bard's Dispense Profanity, which I mentioned in Part 1, which at least used Shakespeare's actual language to leaven the levity. There was 2015's Disturbed Friends, with players taking turns being presented with horribly awkward situations and everyone else trying to predict how they would react. 2015 also saw the release of Red Flags, sort of a mutant dating game in which players took turns trying to create the ideal date for one another with plenty of crossplay of Red Flag cards. Two popular webcomics of the time, known for their transgressive humor, also created tabletop versions of themselves. Penny Arcade partnered with Cryptozoic to create a deck-building game featuring many of its weird and naughty creations, such as a talking scrotum. And Cyanide and Happiness put its name to Joking Hazard, in which players assembled three-panel comics from its deck of cards. A pastime which actually had its roots in a game called Five Card Nancy, popularized by writer and graphic novelist Scott McCloud in his very influential book about graphic novels, Understanding Comics. I wonder whether McCloud knows about this game and whether he's been in touch with Cyanide and Happiness about it. And there are many other naughty party games that emerged in the wake of Cards Against Humanity that I could add to this list, but the last one I will mention is Secret Hitler, because it's actually not a party game, but a really really good social deduction game descended from the resistance that, by virtue of its theme, allowed its designers to name-check old Adolf in the title and thus give the name a cachet far beyond what it normally would have had. I mean, if they'd set it in the court of Louis XIV, would people have really been so keen to play it? I don't think so. This is definitely a case of a naughty theme dangled in front of the marketplace to attract notoriety. Now, during this time, the founders all had regular jobs. The game was selling well, but not that well, especially with all the profits being split eight ways. But as business and the demand for new content grew, the Cards Against Humanity staff had to keep growing too. 
the original octet no longer had the time to come up with new card ideas for all these expansions. People were hired to do that and then submit the lists of new cards to them for approval. And people were hired to take care of social media and marketing and accounting and all the trappings of a modern business. And as is true of many contemporary startups, the Highland Park gang used some of their newfound wealth to partner with charities and advance causes they believed in and wanted to be associated with, such as America Votes promo packs to raise money for the Clinton campaign in 2016, and Feminist Frequency, a website devoted to creating accessible feminist media criticism. So, originally at this point, I was going to continue with a section where I proceeded to lay out a case in detail that beneath this veneer of punk rock corporate respectability, there was in fact a culture of misogyny and racism at Cards Against Humanity. There was a rape allegation against Max Temkin in 2014, which never really went away, and in the spring of 2020, a slew of stories began to emerge of the toxic work culture there, all basically stemming from the fact that the guys running the place were guys, white guys, with a typical or stereotypical suburban upbringing with the shelteredness and privilege that goes with it. Temkin, in particular, comes across in these stories as a basically nerdy or geeky guy who stumbled into success and notoriety and took advantage of it to bootstrap himself up a few notches in status. It's a story that's played out many, many times in Western culture. Only Temkin had the misfortune to play it out in an era with social media, a heightened awareness of tone deafness, and much less willingness to simply let boys be boys. In the end, it all proved too much for Temkin to outface, and at the beginning of June 2020, he resigned his managing duties at the company, although he remained a one-eighth shareholder. In true Shakespearean or Louis C.K.-ian fashion, the very characteristics that drove Temkin to succeed also brought him down. For now, at least. Then, barely a week after Temkin's resignation, and, in the wake of the massive protests across the United States and the world in reaction to the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis, it became known that AdMagic, which, remember, was the company that printed Cards Against Humanity, had applied for a trademark on the phrase Black Lives Matter with the intent of creating a board game. The possibility of a BLM-themed game designed not by people in the movement, but a company associated with Cards Against Humanity, who all happened to be white, was not exactly met with enthusiasm once the story broke. AdMagic's owner, Sherry Spiro, quickly retreated, telling TMZ that it was all a well-meaning attempt to create an educational tool in collaboration with the BLM movement, and to keep the trademark safe from people who might get the same idea, but use it for negative purposes. The problem was, she hadn't actually approached anyone first at Black Lives Matter before taking action, so the optics of it all, even if they were true, were at best tone-deaf, and at worst, parasitic. I'll post links to these stories in the episode description so you can follow up on your own time if you want, but the reason I decided not to go into detail was simple. 
other people have already done the journalistic legwork here, particularly the gaming blog Polygon. And since my time is limited, I wanted to cut to the chase and ask a bigger question. The question is not, am I surprised that at least some of the people behind the creation of Cards Against Humanity turned out to be assholes? Of course the answer to that is no. I'm not surprised. The humor of Cards Against Humanity was, even after all the rape cards were removed, fundamentally juvenile, excluding, antisocial, and just yucky. People who gravitate to that kind of humor also tend to say things like, can't you take a joke? Which is all well and good when the joke isn't about them. There's a fundamental lack of empathy there, which would tend to be reflected in other aspects of their lives, like, say, at work. So, it's not surprising that a business run by such people would, barring some major personal growth or grounded in human resource best practices, tend to hire others with a similar mindset and foster a toxic culture. The question is also not, is Cards Against Humanity a bad game because some of its creators are assholes? There again the answer is no, because Cards Against Humanity is apples to apples with naughty humor, and the fundamental game mechanics of apples to apples are excellent. Nor is the question, is it okay to like playing Cards Against Humanity? Does it make you a bad person if you do like playing it? Whether or not you know about the guys who created it. There, my answer is that I don't have a single close friend who still plays it, whether or not they're tabletop connoisseurs. We've all played it a couple of times, sure, but that's all we needed. Uh, it sort of depends on how old you are. I mean, up to about 25 years old, I'd understand. But if you were in your 40s or 50s and still enjoying it, well, if I met you at a party and you volunteered that you still played Cards Against Humanity on a regular basis and loved it... I admit I would think you were a bit emotionally immature and stuck in an adolescent mindset. No. The real question is, why does any of this matter? It's just a stupid party game after all. And my answer is this. Even in the little doll's house world of tabletop culture, there's a struggle going on between those who want to keep it a boys club of mainly white guys, plus maybe a few token ethnics, and those who want to see it reflect the full and true diversity of our society. Later on, I'm going to talk about how that plays out in terms of representation of diverse voices in game design. But Cards Against Humanity, both the game and its business, represents to me those habits of mind, both unconscious and conscious, unintentional and intentional, well-meaning and malicious, which operate to exclude or intimidate others. Women, BIPOC, LGBTQ+, to name a few, and their allies in the gaming space in order to preserve the dominance of the status quo. And you'd better play along and laugh because it's just a joke, right? Well, that's done. It's been, compared to everything else so far, excruciatingly hard to write about, but now we get to move into the 2010s, and our spotlight is going to shift around the world to show just how global the influence of tabletop culture and design had become. That was part two 
of Episode 9 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs>